1: go. Episode 89 of the Al Galdi podcast, the Santana Moss episode. Although I got this tweet from a man, Ivan Lambert. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. He said, yes, it is the Santana Moss episode for episode 89, but honorable mentions for Alvin Garrett, Verlin Biggs, Dave Robinson, and hopefully Cam Sims someday. I love now that I'm getting feedback and suggestions for what these episodes should be named in terms of the episode numbers. You got to love that. But whatever the case may be, it is Tuesday, June 22nd, 2021, a day on which I have not one, but two guests for you. We strive on this podcast to bring you perspectives that are smart. Well, two high-level thinkers are coming up on the show. Josh Gerben, a D.C.-based lawyer, one of the top trademark and intellectual property lawyers in the country. He's coming up to discuss the Washington football team having trouble trademarking Washington football team. And Nationals insider Todd Divas, the author of the Inside the Clubhouse newsletter, very good when it comes to talking Nats, understands analytics well. He's coming up as the Nats on Tuesday night begin a big two-game series at the Philadelphia Phillies. Coming up next segment, I have for you the latest from Ron Rivera on the Washington football team's quarterback competition, as yes, Don Ron continues to talk up Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke. Ron has become a promoter. He's like Dana White or Bob Arum or Don King talking up a fight. That's Ron promoting this quarterback competition right now. I want to talk Wizards specifically two observations having to do with the four teams that make up the conference finals matchups in the NBA playoffs. Two lessons we as Wizards fans can learn from these four teams. And yes, I will briefly get into the Orioles of a long Monday night for them. A 10-2 loss to manager Dusty Baker and his American League leading Houston Astros at Oriole Park, at Camden Yards, in a game that took three hours, 40 minutes and featured two rain delays, and the O's being no hit over the first seven and the third innings. you can tweet me at Algaldi, you can email me the Algaldi podcast at yahoo.com, email from Michael King on me defrosting my freezer and ultimately taking my hammer to pound away at the ice. Uh, writes Michael, take the thing outside and prop the door open, and let the thing defrost on a warm day, the chunks of ice will take care of themselves in a few hours. I actually find this to be rather satisfying. Uh, Yes, Michael, I did do that, Uh, but I had a bunch of food sitting in the kitchen for multiple hours, so I wanted to speed up the process, and so after a few hours, I got the hammer, and I started pounding on the ice. It was actually therapeutic in some ways. Took longer than I wanted it to. The ice was stubborn, but ultimately. I got the job done. Email from Neil Mollin. Al, a word to the wise on the NCAA decision from the Supreme Court this morning, i.e., Monday morning. Twitter and lots of sports writers are all tingly about the passage in Kavanaugh's concurring decision about the NCAA being above the law and citing the concurrence as proof the end is near for the NCAA in a lot of different ways. I'd advise you to be cautious. Kavanaugh's concurrence did not garner a single other vote. It was Brett bloviating and nothing more. It has the same legal impact as this email. Yes, so this was big, but also complicated news on Monday. The Supreme Court of these United States unanimously affirming a ruling that provides for an incremental increase in how college athletes can be compensated. Justice Neil Gorsuch, a fellow product of Georgetown Prep High School in Rockville, wrote the court's opinion, which upheld a district court judge's decision that the NCAA was violating antitrust law by putting limits on the education-related benefits that schools can provide to athletes. But Justice Brett Kavanaugh, another fellow product of Georgetown Prep, published a concurring opinion that slapped around the NCAA suggested that the NCAA's rules that restrict any type of compensation, including direct payment to athletes for what they do as athletes, may no longer hold up very well in future antitrust challenges. And this is what got everybody all excited, that Kavanaugh laid the groundwork for the NCAA's way of being to come tumbling down. But my man Neil wrote a very smart and detailed email about what happened on Monday and made this point, And this is a key one. It isn't entirely clear what education related benefits means. And says Neil, if I were advising the NCAA, I would be hard pressed to define it for them. The court seems to believe that a benefit is either education related or related to athletic performance, but cannot be both. The language is so nonspecific specific that I am not sure this is true or makes any sense, but this is what we have to work with. Yeah. And while I am not a lawyer or legal scholar, I do know that the Supreme Court at times will purposely keep things vague so as to leave room for interpretation in future years. I do think this whole thing of paying college athletes is far more complicated than people make it out to be. I love it when people say, yeah, we should pay college athletes. Well, okay. How much? Do you pay everyone the same? If not, how do you determine payment? Do you pay women the same as men? What about the many sports programs and athletic departments that lose money? What about the fact that so many athletes already are being quote unquote paid in the form of free tuition and access to facilities and things that most people? can only dream of. It's not as nor ever has been as simple as just pay college athletes. Sure, I want everyone to get paid, but the details matter, and I have never ever seen anyone actually adequately address those details in the meantime and in between time. I owe you another thank you. This podcast, this humble podcast which I'm recording right now in my basement with pillows and blankets serving as soundproofing. This young upstart podcast that's less than four months old, up to number 21 in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. Number 21, one spot ahead of the ESPN NFL Live podcast. We are taking on the behemoths in the industry, the Goliaths in podcasting, and beating them. This is a movement, people. This is a revolution, my friends. We are in this together. We are like outlaws, bucking the system, striking back at the status quo. So thank you again for your support. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word. All of that helps out a ton. The latest from Ron Rivera on the Washington football team's quarterback competition in moments. But as you surely know, Ron dealt with something very serious last year, right? skin cancer. That just happens to be an area of expertise for one of the great supporters of this podcast, Dr. George Verghese, the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is is an option. And Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301 396 3401, or visit MidAtlanticSkin.com. That's MidAtlanticSkin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, before we get to the first of our two special guests, DC-based trademark and intellectual property lawyer, Josh Gerbin on the Washington football team having trouble trademarking Washington football team, I did want to note one of the latest installments of Ron Rivera talking up the Washington football team's quarterback competition. Ron, as you may have noticed, has been making the rounds in the form of interviews with local reporters who cover the team. He was on the John Keim Report podcast with Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN, was not pressed about the Kyle Allen situation, but did get into Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke. And it's important to note that Ron does keep complimenting Fitzpatrick. Ron is in no way disparaging Fitzpatrick, continues to say a lot of good things about Fitzpatrick. I still believe that Fitzpatrick is Washington's likely starting quarterback come week one against the Chargers at FedEx Field. September 12th is the date of that game, by the way. Not nearly as far away as you may think. But what Ron also continues to do in these interviews is compliment Heineke a lot. Here was Ron with Keim. Uh, Ron's response to the question of whether Heineke closed the gap between himself and Fitzpatrick, with what Heineke did during OTA and minicamp practices,
2: I think Taylor pushed him. Yes, um, and because Taylor came back uh, bigger, stronger, um, you know, we asked him about working and getting stronger, getting more physically uh, fit in terms of his upper body. The one thing we everybody I remember he was in school when we, when we brought him right. back. So we didn't have an off season to really develop and work it uh, because he was taking classes, but. We talked to him prior to him leaving, said, hey, look, these are the things that we need you to do to get yourself ready to go um, and get yourself ready to, to, to perform at a high level for us. And, and he went and did it. He came in, looked really good uh, on up until he, uh, you know, he got stitches.
1: Ah, uh, Yes, the stitches. Earlier this month, we learned that Heineke, during an OTA practice, caught an elbow above his left eye during an installation period, giving him a cut that required seven stitches and chipping a tooth, and yet another instance of Heineke being like a magnet for injuries, although clearly that was just a fluke occurrence. Also from Ron was this, his response to the notion of Heineke pushing Fitzpatrick if Fitzpatrick doesn't perform well at training camp, or even if Fitzpatrick does perform well at camp.
2: We want we want everybody pushed. We want everybody developing. We want everybody getting better. We want anybody sitting back on what we did last year you know, um, and 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 this phrase is going to be very important when
1: I get together with the team. Now what? You know what I'm saying? Now what? Now what? That's actually something my three-year-old son says a lot. Now what? It's a good question. Now what? Yes, we'll see. Now what? Uh, I'm glad that Ron is preaching competition. There's no reason not to. There really is no downside to this. If you're trying to overhaul the culture into one of accountability and competence and class. You have people earn things. I mean, it's not that complicated, right? Uh, And Ron would look foolish if he admitted to having made a mistake in not having a quarterback competition last summer and then went ahead and didn't have a quarterback competition this summer. I mean, that would look ridiculous, right? That would not make much sense. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Yes, exactly. And it would be one thing if Washington had traded for, say, Matthew Stafford this offseason, because in that scenario, conducting a quarterback competition this summer wouldn't be necessary. But Washington did not trade for Stafford. Washington signed a guy in Fitzpatrick who has been sneaky good the last few seasons, but who isn't a franchise quarterback the way that Stafford is. And yes, I do believe that Stafford is a franchise quarterback, although I'm fine with Washington not having given up multiple first-round picks to get Stafford, as the Rams did. Remember the terms of that trade. Detroit dealt Stafford to the Rams for Jared Goff, first-round picks in 2022 and 2023, and a 2021 third-round pick. The Rams gave up a lot to get Stafford. Now, I will continue to say that Ron's actions will speak far louder than his words. So let's see what the distribution of practice reps looks like come training camp. Because if Fitzpatrick does as he did, during the mandatory minicamp, and that is take every single first-team quarterback rep, then that's going to tell you a lot about the legitimacy of the quarterback competition. However, if we do see Heineke get some first-team practice reps at camp, that legitimizes the competition. I would also say this. There certainly seems to be a path by which Heineke doesn't get first-team reps and still challenges Fitzpatrick, and that is if Fitzpatrick struggles in camp, and in the preseason, and Heineke looked sharp. You know, that would be like what we had with Robert Griffin III and Kirk Cousins in 2015 when it turned out that there was a quarterback competition, and we just didn't know it. This time, we know it, but as you may recall, Kirk ended up becoming Washington's starting quarterback for the 2015 season, not because he got the same amount of first-team training camp reps as Robert did or anything like that, but because Robert was so bad And Kirk was thought to be potentially good. And then Robert suffered that concussion in Washington's second game that preseason, that game against Detroit at FedEx Field. And that was the opening that Jay Gruden needed to declare Kirk as, remember, not just the starting quarterback for week one, but the starting quarterback for the 2015 season. What a day that was. August 31st, 2015. Would I have called the Kirk Cousins coup?
3: I'm a little bit more process-oriented.
1: Yes, Kirk. Hello. But that was six years ago. And Ryan is not Robert. These are two totally different situations. The politics involved in the Robert Kirk war deal were massive. We certainly don't seem to have anything like that with this situation. But we do seem to have a situation. And the complete dismissal of Taylor Heineke this offseason by so many has, to me, been foolish and unfair off what he did in a wildcard loss to Tampa Bay, just like the complete dismissal of Heineke going into that playoff game against the Bucks was wrong. And maybe this ends up going nowhere. But Ron Rivera continues to lay the groundwork for at least the opportunity for this Heineke thing to go somewhere. We shall see. So on Monday's installment of the podcast, I talked about the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office on Friday having issued a refusal of the Washington football team's attempt to trademark the name Washington football team on clothing. And we got into what the team wanting to trademark Washington football team potentially means and also the difficulty right now in the team trademarking Washington football team there's a lot to all of this. And so here to help us out is one of the top trademark and intellectual property lawyers in the country, Josh Gerbin, who is based in DC. He is the founder of Gerbin Intellectual Property. You can find out more by going to GerbinLaw.com. Josh, it's nice to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing great, Al. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you coming on. So before we get into the particulars of what's going on here, just a general question. The fact that the team wants to trademark the name Washington football team for clothing. Does that say to you that the team is seriously considering Washington football team as the permanent name or not necessarily?
3: Well, not necessarily. I mean, it's common for any major sports team to obtain a trademark registration on the team name, on the team logo and things like that. And when the Washington football team adopted that name, Uh, last year, they did go ahead and file all the trademark applications around the logo they were using in the name uh, at that time. And and that would be basically to protect, try to protect themselves going forward, depending on whether they use the name permanently or whether they're just using the name temporarily. So I, I don't think it, It necessarily gives us a huge insight into whether or not they're looking at it on a more permanent basis, but just sort of makes sense from the fact that, hey, this is going to be what we're going to call an NFL team. We need to have as much trademark protection as we can even in the the interim.
1: So the ruling on Friday from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, what exactly were the grounds for the ruling?
3: Sure. So the Washington football team trademark filings, um, there was a couple of them, all got refused for the same pretty much for the same reason which is that one there's another trademark registration for Washington Football Club that already exists and two that the name is what we call geographically descriptive meaning i mean it, it basically just means the name's unoriginal which everybody obviously agrees with it's you're saying it's Washington football team while well, all you're doing is using the 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 geographic identifier is Washington, and then putting the generic phrase football team after it, trademark office saying, hey, look, typically this is not the kind of name you can protect because it's not unique enough. You'll have to prove to us that the consumers in the marketplace really can identify with this name and, and,
1: and, and where it comes from. So if Washington football team is geographically descriptive, why isn't Washington football club geographically descriptive?
3: It's yeah, a great question. Um, <laughs> the trademark office sometimes works in mysterious ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but the the idea here is that the that, that portion of the of the refusal, the fact that it's geographically descriptive, is something that everybody would tell you it was um, expected. Uh, any, any trademark observers would say, "Well, that's an expected thing for the trademark office to say." Um, what the the one thing that we're that I would be pretty certain of is that the the Washington Football Team can get around that portion of the refusal. Basically, what they're going to have to do is submit a lot of evidence to the trademark office that you know consumers would identify this as the name of, of the fo- of, of the NFL team in Washington D.C. Which I think there's plenty of evidence that people would would have come to realize at this point. Um, They're they're in sort of this technical difference um, with that Washington Football Club application you asked about where the owner of that registration Agreed that it was geographically descriptive, but got a registration on something called the Supplemental Register. So there's these two registers at the USPTO that trademarks can live on. One is the Principal Register and one is the Supplemental Register. And it kind of sounds like it is. You want to be on the Principal Register. That's where like all the really unique marks like Pepsi and Kodak and Nike go to live. The supplemental register is where these sort of more descriptive, what we call descriptive terms, may go to live. And, and even though they're weaker registrations, they're still registrations and still can cause refusals of subsequent trademark filings. Which, in this case, the um, uh, the Washington Football Club registration
1: obviously did. So you mentioned the person who successfully trademarked Washington Football Club years ago. He is a Virginia realtor named Philip McCauley. He, in 2014, essentially in an effort to squat on a number of potential new names for the Redskins, were they ever to change their name, filed to trademark a number of potential names. I I, I know this is legal. Is this considered ethical, people doing this? Because, I I mean, obviously the reason you do this is for money to eventually get a payoff. Um, I, I don't know. What's kind of the thinking on someone doing something like that?
3: Yeah, so it, trademark, trademarks operate a little differently than domains. You know, folks always consider domain squatting where someone will go out and register a bunch of domains or URLs um, as, as a problem. But, you know, typically that's as long as you're doing that in a, you know, Before someone adopts a name, before someone files a trademark, that's okay. Trademark filings are a little different in the sense that in order to have filed this application and then also to maintain the actual registration, any owner of a trademark is required to prove that they're actually selling all the goods that are listed in the application. So in this case, uh, Mr. McCauley would have to prove that he still has sales of clothing items that are branded as Washington Football Club clothing items. And if he was not selling those goods, uh, either at the time he made the filing or or even now – the Washington football team could actually institute a procedure at the trademark office to cancel his registration on simple grounds of either fraud or grounds of non, non-use, non not no commercial use of the name. So trademark registrations are actually pretty hard to maintain from a quote-unquote squatter's perspective. If someone's just filing them to try to squat on a name – if there's no real business behind them, they are going to be very challengeable filings uh, down the road, which at this point, I'm sure the Washington football team is looking at, at that option here.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you view McCauley as having a challengeable trademark in Washington Football Club?
3: In this particular trademark, I don't have enough knowledge of his business activities to know one way or another. He did make a lot of statements in the press a year or two ago that I think would Certainly raise an eyebrow to whether or not he had enough business activities around a lot of the names he filed to maintain those registrations. And so i would I would highly suspect that the Washington football team's lawyers are going to look at those statements as part of their decision as to how to approach the refusal that was issued last week.
1: With something like what McCauley is doing, I mean, is it the job of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to avoid situations like this, to try to deny people like this the opportunity to do as McCauley is doing? Or is the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office essentially a neutral observer with this kind of a thing and should play no role in trying to govern, hey, this isn't really right what he's trying to do. We shouldn't just grant him this trademark for Washington Football Club when we have a good sense of what the true purpose of this is.
3: Sure, it's a great question. Um, when you're completing a trademark application, w- what the government asks you to do is they ask you to submit a specimen, a photograph of how you're using the trademark. So in this case, Mr. McCauley would have submitted a photograph of a wash of, of a piece of clothing with Washington Football Club attached as like a. on a tag or a label showing that that was the actual brand of clothing he would have also made a sworn statement uh to the patent and trademark office that he had sales of these goods and that's what they require like they don't go in the patent and trademark office isn't required to go in and check your business records and make sure you're actually doing business they're saying hey show us some photographs show us some proof make a sworn statement that this is actually happening and then we will grant your trademark um without any further real investigation on our part And, and and part of that's a resource thing i mean if you had to go for everybody that files a trademark application and check their business records and have this really thorough review of everything it would be very difficult for the for the patent and trademark office to process applications so what they do is they require you to make these statements make these you know un, under penalty of perjury make these claims and then if 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 any of them are wrong there's this procedure that we've been talking about where another party can come in and try to cancel that registration on grounds that any of the statements you made were not accurate. And so that's where that that's why that challenge provision exists, so that folks can challenge those statements and require someone to back it up with further proof later on.
1: We're talking with Josh Gerbin, one of the top trademark and intellectual property lawyers in the country. He's based in D.C. We're discussing the Washington football team's quest to trademark Washington football team. So, uh, you know, reading you on Twitter and you did a great job breaking this down, you can follow Josh at Josh Gerben. You also brought up something else in this ruling having to do with Washington team footballers and that there are two pending trademark filings for that and that those two trademark filings going through could cause a further refusal of the Washington football team trademark. This gets very complicated But what do you make of that aspect of this, that it's not just Washington Football Club and what this guy McCauley is doing? There are these two pending trademark filings for Washington team footballers. Right.
3: So as you mentioned, when the USPTO reviewed the Washington football team trademark application, they also um, found that, hey, not only – is the Washington Football Club registration, the mark that's already registered by Mr. McCauley, a problem? There's these two other pending filings that got in before the Washington football team's filings. Um, Those are for Washington team footballers, if you can keep this all straight. Um, And those are still just pending. So those have not registered. And those themselves have been initially refused because of other trademarks as well. So basically, what what we would not really expect I would be. Uh, let me rephrase. I basically would not expect these to ultimately become a problem. Okay. Um, in all likelihood, they're going to get refused and go away. However, if now that now that this person knows it hey, my trademarks might have been cited against the Washington football team, there, there could be, again, something for that person involved that owns those applications where they get very interested in trying to see what they can make of those applications, knowing the stakes involved at, the, at this stage. But ultimately, I would say that those are probably not going to be long-term problems for the Washington football team. They, they were noted by the trademark office, uh, but, but in all likelihood are going are to resolve in,
1: in, in, on, on their own. When it comes to this ongoing saga of the Washington football team and a new name permanently, you know, we've heard of potential names, including names that are already used by teams, right? Like Warriors has come up. We have the Golden State Warriors. Red Wolves has come up. We have the Arkansas State Red Wolves. If you are Dan Snyder, if you are the Washington football team, to what extent is it difficult to try to go with a new permanent name that's already being used by another team? I mean, is it, cost effective? Does it make sense? Is it so tricky legally that you're just better off going with something original that isn't already being used?
3: It's a great question. And it's, a, it's not an easy one to answer. When you're Deciding on a new name, typically the first thing you, you do is engage in something called a trademark search where you will look for other similar names that might be out there in the marketplace. So in this case, like you mentioned, if, if they were looking at Warriors, they would have to consider that the Golden State Warriors have a trademark registration on that name for a basketball team and, and obviously for merchandise and clothing and all the things that go around that. So you're dealing with a much more crowded marketplace uh, now than you ever have before, and more names and more different teams. So it can be very hard to come up with a very unique and name that's never been used for a sports team before. That being said, trademarks typically protect the owner of a trademark for the goods and services being offered and any what they call any natural expansion thereof. So in this case... A basketball team called the Warriors be confusing to consumers. If a football team is called the Warriors, maybe not. You know, and and maybe those could very easily coexist without people thinking that they're actually related in the marketplace. And and so, the lawyers that are evaluating any any new names that the Washington football team is thinking about are going to kind of go through those legal steps of saying, "Hey, is there any court cases out there that show that?" Basketball teams and football teams just are not related in the marketplace. And if they feel like there could be some concern, they might reach out to the Warriors and say, Hey, look, we really want to use this name. Are you guys going to be okay with this or are you going to, you know, object to it? Because if you're going to object to it, we want to know now. And you could have those conversations, especially at a high level when you're dealing with an NFL team that's trying to come up with its new name. They may be having those conversations on the back, on background with with lawyers from other teams, you know, that, that share a similar name.
1: Final item, and I appreciate your time. So, I guess I'd never consider this, but this refusal on Friday had to do with the Washington Football Team's attempt to trademark the name Washington Football Team on clothing. When you are establishing new trademarks, what are the things do you have to establish the trademarks for? Like, I guess I always just figured it was a general thing, but you obviously have to do it for clothing. Like, what other things do you have to trademark something for? Sure.
3: So, you're absolutely right, and you can have a trademark—the same mark in different what they call channels of trade. So think of you have Dove soap and you have Dove chocolate or we've got Delta Airlines and Delta faucets. So when you're filing a trademark application, you have to make a specific claim to the products or services that you would like to protect in association with that trademark. In this case, the Washington football team filed for what we call two categories or classes of goods and services. One was for the clothing and other merchandise like jerseys and things like that. And the other was for the provision of football games, like the entertainment of providing a football game. And so what the trademark office said is, hey, your trademark application is okay as it relates to the entertainment service of providing football games, but we have this other similar one here for clothing, so we're not going to let it go through for that. Um, and, th- and that is something that you know you can easily have part of a trademark application get approved and registered, and part of it not because the the, the clothing portion of it in this case is too similar to somebody else that owns a name for a clothing brand. But the Washington Football Club Mr. McCauley's registration is only registered for clothing. It's not registered for providing football games. So it it did not block that portion of the Washington football
1: team's application. Excellent. Well, it's great to get your insight in all this. It's much appreciated. Josh Gerben, the founder of Gerben Intellectual Property. You can find out more by going to gerbenlaw.com. All the best, Josh. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Al. You bet. All right, so no game for the Nationals on Monday. They on Tuesday night they get a big two game series at the Philadelphia Phillies. We anticipate the pitching matchup being a good one: Max Scherzer versus Zach Wheeler. Nats are just a game behind the Phillies for second in the National League East, in which four of the five teams have losing records. Pretty amazing, but. The Nats are coming off an eight and three home stand that concluded with them taking three of four against the National League East-leading New York Mets. The Nats now have won nine of twelve, are up to thirty three and thirty six on the season. Kyle Schwarber has hit nine home runs over the last ten games. Eric Fetty has tossed twenty consecutive scoreless innings. The baby shark Gerardo Parra is back. Very pleased to be joined right now by Nationals Insider Todd Divas the author of the Inside the Clubhouse newsletter, to which I subscribe. Todd does a great job with that. You can subscribe by going to insidethech.com. Free to subscribe, uh, by the way. Todd, it's nice to talk to you, man. How you doing? I'm great, Al. How are you? Good. Doing well. I uh, appreciate Good. you coming on. So time sure. will, of course, tell the answer to this question. But I'm curious about your answer right now. Is this recent Matt success? a mere you know, momentary surge for a team that otherwise isn't that good? Or is this recent Nats success the start of a turnaround for a Nats team that actually is pretty good?
4: Well, luckily I was prepped for this question because this is this the discussion being had in the press box as we uh, all wrapped up on Sunday after what was the most delightful day at Nationals Park since the World Series in 2019. Uh, good crowd, good competition, fun game, lots of things happening. And to answer your question right now, I'm still a little hesitant. Um, You know, sweeping the Pirates, I'm not going to put much stock in that. So I'll throw that out. They also didn't face DeGrom over the weekend uh, on the flip side of that. The Nationals didn't pitch Max Scherzer and still won three or four. Um, The Mets are really banged up still. The bottom half of their lineup all weekend was a bunch of guys that I don't think casual fans had much familiarity with. And if you're accustomed to seeing Mets lineups, you're like, where's Jeff McNeil? Where's Brandon Nimmo? Where are all these guys? And they're all hurt, and they'll be back. Um, Flip side of that, the four recent losses that the Nationals have had 3-1 3-1 to Tampa Bay, very good team. 1-0 and 2-1 to San Francisco, 20 games over five hundred, leading the NL West division in front of the Dodgers. And the 5-1 loss over the weekend to the Mets. And, you know, it's extremely hard to take 4-4 four four from a team. Um, and predominantly, doubleheaders are split, which is exactly what happened. So, you know, at a minimum, what we're seeing is a much better better brand of baseball where they have kind of all the parts moving in the same direction for the first time this season. And that's been happening for the last couple weeks. And it's a definite improvement. The the question is, is this three months worth, is there three months worth of sustainability um, going on here? Obviously Kyle Schwarber is going to come back to earth, but Juan Soto has been much better in June, 961 OPS. 19 games during the month, something we haven't been talking about a lot because Kyle Schwarber has gone absolutely crazy. Um, you know, like historically crazy. And obviously that should be what everybody is talking about. So he kind of seems back. Trey Turner was better. This Eric Fetty thing, I mean Al, if I said to you in the you know, spring training, hey, I want you to put a thousand dollars down and say Eric Fetty is gonna throw 20 scoreless innings this season yeah <laughs> and that's how you get your money back um you know there's no chance you would do that and and so you know that's pretty amazing he's number two on the staff and f4 behind max scherzer um you know and one of the huge questions is patrick corbin better is he, i don't think he's gonna be 19 and 18 patrick corbin but you know Last year, he allowed the most hits in the National League. And this year, he was being bludgeoned again for the first two months of the season. But better against the Pirates, again, not a very good team. Um, Better, 15 of 16, retired, higher strikeout rate Sunday against the Mets, also an improvement. So is, is he kind of getting his act together? Those are the things that are going to determine whether they can kind of keep moving forward
1: at this rate. You mentioned Juan Soto. It's been such an odd season for him. And lately, he's been getting on base like crazy. His on base percentage for the season is up to 406. But his slugging percentage for the season is still very low by Soto standards. It's just 432. Yep. He's hitting a bunch of singles. He's also hitting into a lot of double plays as well. What do you make of Soto's season so far? Yeah, it's,
4: it's a curiosity. And he has some crazy splits, too. So there's, there's a couple things going on. His. his Road OPS this month in particular is over 1,000, and his home OPS is below 700. It's super strange. And also, he struggled a lot against left-handed pitching this year. He's almost, let's see, 80 points worse year over year against left-handers. You know, you don't think he's going to hit 300 against left-handed pitching because of the lefty-lefty matchups and all the situational guys that exist now in the league. Um, That's understandable, but he's also down around 200 this season against lefties, and he can be better than that. And he's also seen more left-handers. It's about a 6% uptick um, year over year in, in versus 2019 in, in the percentage of left-handed pitching that he's facing. So the guys he does the worst against, he is seeing more often, and that's suppressing some of his numbers. But his slug is also higher against them than it is against righties. So there, there's a lot at play here. The, the double play thing, um, I'm less concerned about. To me, primarily that tells me he's hitting the ball on the ground too often. But he's also hitting it hard and he's hitting it into the shift. Um, and so, you know, you kind of add those things up and it, and it results in a lot of plays. Um, he needs to get the ball in the air more. He needs to go to left field more. We saw some of that. Over the weekend, um, in particular, left field, and we saw a couple hits against left-handers, uh, he was able to pull some singles into right. So those are good signs for him. Uh, I, w- I would expect everything to come up for him. He's, he's just too good to have a bad year.
1: Talking with Nationals insider Todd Dibas the author of the Inside the Clubhouse newsletter. You can subscribe by going to InsideTheCH.com, free to subscribe. So the offense is the thing. I mean, that is a concern. The Nats don't score yeah. a lot of runs. Um, you know, it's always kind of felt like okay, the offense can't be this bad, and yet it has been bad for so much of the season. Do you think the offense will be better, or do you think this more or less is what the offense is this season, and that is a major weakness?
4: Yeah, I think there's there's room for them to be better because they have three significant holes um, that have room for growth. Uh, and probably number one is Starling Castro. I mean, his offense has been terrible this year. Last time I looked, he was about, I think it was 25th out of 28 qualified third basemen in OPS. So he's one of the worst offensive third basemen in the league. His defense has been very good. I mean, we've almost forgotten that they just like threw him over there when the Carter Keyman experiment failed and they're like, oh, Castro's going to play third base now and we'll see how it goes. Um, And he's been very good there, but his offense has been woeful. Victor Robles's offense has been woeful, even though his walk rate is up, which is a positive, but he's not doing much of anything else. Um, and, and Josh Bell is back in a funk. Uh, you know, he he had it go in there for seven to ten days, and then he trailed off and, um, you know, drove in a run over the weekend. But, you know, we're not seeing consistent things from him. Um, so, you know, there's room for growth in, in three distinct spots. Um, and I think Trey Turner can maintain, right? And Juan Soto can improve slash maintain. Jan Gomes is having a good offensive season. He's, he's fine where he is. Schwarber's going to come back to earth, obviously, to some degree, but this is the guy he is, right? He's going to hit 230 and 30-ish home runs. Um, and, and that's kind of what he does. So it's not going to be a great offense. And, and I'm, uh, really interested about what's going to happen at the trade deadline at this point um even if they're just around 500 um you know kind of what's going to be the calculus there and who's going to be available and who would they replace in order to try to boost the offense
1: you think it's more likely they are buyers or sellers come the deadline
4: (laughs) yeah you know last week i was being asked you know how likely do you think it is they're going to trade Max Scherzer right. or even three weeks ago? Um, you know, and we saw that percolating everywhere. And, you know, I have, this is a little bit of a non-answer, but I'll, I'll try to answer your question more directly after I put this out there, this idea. And I'm curious what you think out, because obviously you're so knowledgeable about baseball. To me, this trade line deadline is distinctly different than any others because of the pandemic. And because of the revenue lost last year and at the start of this year in the park. So, if it's 2018 all over again, and this team's around 500, um, and the postseason is kind of a long shot, but you're not out of it, out of it, do they retain everybody and hope that they can get something going and kind of accept that maybe they win 84 games, but they still have a reason for fans to come to the park? Are they willing? If they're kinda out of it to trade Max Scherzer, should he ever approve a trade? To trade Daniel Hudson if he's healthy. To trade Brad Hand, you know. To trade Castro if there's someone interest, interested in him. To trade Schwarber, right? All these guys, all these veteran guys that they could move. Would they be willing to pull all those guys off the field in late July and then go through August and September with basically no attraction outside of Juan Soto in the stadium? in a team that's not going to win. Um, you know, they're in accept the revenue outcomes of doing that for, you know, the betterment of the future of the team because you're theoretically acquiring something that could help you down the road. I don't know if ownership would be willing to do something like that. Um, so I would label them more I don't know if I would call them a buyer or a seller right now, I would label them more they might be status quo and we'll see a light move or two um, like we have in the past from Mike Rizzo.
1: Yeah. So what you just outlined, I think makes total sense, but it's also what really worries me about the Nationals because I almost feel like doing nothing is the worst thing you can do. My fear going into this season was that the Nats were in that like low to mid 80s win territory, which is basically the worst place you can be. And the Nats reminded me in some ways of the post-World Series winning San Francisco Giants or the post-World Series winning Philadelphia Phillies in that it's an older team, the party's over, everyone kind of knows it, except the team itself. And, you know, maybe the Nats end up having a great season. Like, we'll see. It's been great to see what they've done lately. But I still worry about sort of the macro with them of they're not bad, but they're not good enough to be great. I think the state of the farm system is a major concern. I don't think that gets enough attention. You know, the Gerardo Para thing is nice, but I think it's really telling that every time the Nationals call someone up from the minors, it's a veteran who had been with the team a few years ago, whether it's Para or Justin Miller or Jeffrey Rodriguez. You know, Paulo Espino has been great, but when they needed someone to make a spot start for Strasburg, it was Paolo Espino. Like They don't have a lot happening at the minor league level beyond Cade Cavalli and That's the kind of thing that dooms teams. And I I just, I worry about this with the Nats of you can't keep neglecting the farm system. And so if you have an opportunity to trade away Scherzer and Hudson and Hand and Schwerber and I don't know, maybe Castro too, who knows, and get back something. I'm under no delusions of you're going to get back, you know, a bunch of top 10 prospects. But if you can replenish the farm system like that, from a baseball standpoint, I think it makes a lot of sense. From a financial standpoint, like you just said, it may not be the path that the team goes down.
4: Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you. And and the farm system is, everything in the farm system is anchored at basically the A level, um, you know, until they move Cavalli to to Harrisburg. That's where Jackson Rutledge is. That's where Cole Henry is. Unfortunately, both are currently hurt. Um, You know, they just moved up Cronin, too. And so everything is at the lower levels. And, you know, talking about this makes me think about the Wizards. and. In this way, for years Ernie Grunfeld was flippant about second round picks. He, he basically didn't think they carried any relevance. He hardly ever used them. Um, he would send them out, you know, left and right. And what he did was he beat up his odds of hitting something, you know, hitting on a second round pick. And i think that kind of idea holds true here too if you move all those guys and to your point no one's going to be like here's our best prospect for three months of brad hand but you're going to increase your frequency you're going to increase your depth you're going to increase your odds um if you do that and in 2018 when they didn't do that and they kind of they kind of Half did it after the fact. Remember, there's two trade deadlines. Right. and So yeah. then it's Matt Adams is out and, you know, a couple other things here and there. And it, it was all basically moot. Um, and they didn't move Harper when they should have. And so, you know, they didn't do themselves any favor there either. That was, that was straddling the line, which is exactly what you're decrying here. You're a low 80s win team and, and you didn't get anything back. So you're not in, but you're also out. So, um, it's it's a bad place to be, and their talent, such as it is in the farm system, is still multiple years away from being up here, even if we see Cavalli in September somehow, right? Like, he's not going to be a thing thing up here, probably for at least a year, if not two years, and then those other guys are even further behind it.
1: Yeah. And of course, the pain with the Harper thing is Mike Rizzo had a trade ready to go and was yes. disallowed from executing it in
4: positions of need.
1: Too. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, that's that's a killer. That's why like so much of this may not be on Rizzo. It may be on ownership. Um, I do want to get your take on this because I am stunned by this. And it's been to me the biggest positive with the Nats overall this season. And that is their defense. I cannot get yeah. over how well the Nationals have done defensively this season. They've been so bad defensively for so long. They were dead last in the majors in defensive run saved last season. The two major position player acquisitions this past offseason are guys who traditionally have been minus defenders, right? And Kyle Schwarber and Josh Bell. And yet the Nats have been top 10, if not top five in the majors in defensive run saved this season. And of course, when you combine that with the recent surge in the pitching, this overall thing of run prevention, the Nats are excelling in right now, but are you as surprised as I am by how well the Nats have done defensively this year? <laughs> uh,
4: I'm super surprised. Uh, uh, I'm super surprised. I knew there would be improvement because Victor wasn't going to be that bad again, right? Like last year was an anomaly for him defensively. He, he, he was too big slash possibly overweight. I, I wish we could have interacted with the players last year so we could get like eyes on him actually instead of just being told he gained, gained a bunch of muscle and now he's slow or slowed him down at least. Yeah. So you knew he was going to be better, right? Because at 19, he was awesome. Um, and, and Juan Soto in 19 was you know good, above average, I'll give him. Um, and so you figured in last year, he was not good. And you thought, he, so this year, maybe back to average. You get another bump there. But to your point of Bell, Schwarber, and again, I'll go back to, hey, Starlin Castro is starting third baseman now. Um, and we'll use different guys at second base and kind of see how this all goes. You know, it, it's it's crazy their numbers. Um, I think between Josh Bell and Ryan Zimmerman over at first, you you might have the best def- two, you know, best defensive combo in the league. One of the best defensive combos in the league over there, which is totally bizarre to say. Like, I can't even get the words out of my mouth because my brain's like, no way that's true. Yeah, right. Because of who I'm talking about. And then the other layer of this is usually when teams have these clear deficiencies going into the season and those deficiencies either become like leveled off. So they're average or they become a plus. That's when you see a team have a really good season because their main things, the things they can rely on do their thing and then it's all supplemented by these other things that you didn't expect to be as good right like howie kendrick goes crazy for a year and suddenly he's hitting a bunch of homers and he's going to hit 320 all year and you're going to go on to the world series right like um stuff like that and in this case that's how the defense has been that's how the back end of the rotation in particular Fetty has been um john Lester always on a tight wire to me you know and Close to going over the edge, but he's been able to hang on and kind of drag his ERA down in the mid threes. The bullpen's actually been pretty good, even though Will Harris and Hudson are now hurt. Um, So you have all these peripheral things as positives, but it's been some of your anchors uh, not performing up to their ability, which which has prevented you from being a plus team up to this point.
1: Yeah, the Nets really are an interesting team this season, and there are so many ways the season could end up going. I appreciate you coming on so much. Continued success with the Inside the Clubhouse newsletter. I love reading it, man. Todd Divas, Nationals Insider. Uh, Always love talking baseball with you, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, Al. Appreciate it. All right. We had no game in the NBA playoffs on Monday. First time in forever that we did not have a day with an NBA playoff game. But I wanted to get into a few Wizards-related items with you now that the NBA's conference finals are set the damn Washington Wizards. Yes, exactly, that team, the Wizards. Uh the first thing is this, defense matters. I have said that I want whomever the Wizards hire as their next head coach to be someone who gets the Wizards to play defense at a high level. There is a correlation between being good defensively and winning. The final four teams in the 2021 NBA playoffs are the Milwaukee Bucks and Atlanta Hawks in the Eastern Conference Finals and the Phoenix Suns and Los Angeles Clippers in the Western Conference Finals. Three of those four teams were top 10 in the NBA this past regular season in terms of defensive rating, which is points allowed per 100 possessions per NBA.com. The Suns were 6th, the Clippers were 8th, the Bucks were ninth. Now, the Hawks were 18th, so that is notable, although the team that the Hawks beat in the Eastern Conference semis, the Philadelphia 76ers, who were, remember, the one seed in the Eastern Conference. That team was number two in the NBA this past regular season in defensive rating. I think, by and large, you play good defense. You have a shot at doing something in the NBA playoffs. And it's not just all about defense. You have to be able to score the ball, as they say. But if you can't play well defensively, good luck doing anything substantial in the NBA playoffs. The Wizards' rankings in defensive rating... In each of Scott Brooks' five regular seasons as Wizards head coach, 2016-2017, 20th, 2017-2018, 15th, 2018-2019, 27th, 2019-2020, 29th, next to last, and 2020-2021, 20th. The Wizards in four of Brooks' five regular seasons as Wizards head coach were 20th or worse in the 30-team NBA in defensive rating. Not good. Now, what's interesting is, and this never gets talked about enough, the Wizards, believe it or not, were top 10 in the NBA in defensive rating in each of three consecutive regular seasons with Randy Whitman as Wizards head coach. Whitman had four full regular seasons as Wizards head coach. The first three full regular seasons with Whitman as head coach included the Wizards being top 10 in the NBA in defensive rating, 2012-2013, the Wizards were 5th, 2013-2014, 7th, 2014-2015, 6th. And then in Whitman's final regular season as Wizards head coach, the Wiz were 14th in the NBA in defensive rating. So Whitman's worst defensive rating in terms of his four full regular seasons as Wizards head coach was 14th. Brooks's best defensive rating over his five regular seasons as Wizards head coach was 15th. Just to give you an idea here, I'm not telling you Randy Whitman was perfect, but he got the Wizards to play high-level defense in a manner in which so few Wizards head coaches have over the years. I think this matters a lot. I really want the Wizards next head coach, whoever that person is, to be able to get the Wizards to play high-level defense. The other point that I wanted to explore was this. Are we finally seeing some true unpredictability in the NBA playoffs? As everyone knows, the NBA playoffs forever have been as predictable as the sun rising in the East. And yet, here we are now in the conference finals, and we have just one top two seed among the four teams. The Eastern Finals, Bucks-Hawks, Milwaukee is the three seed in the East, Atlanta is the five seed in the East. The Western Finals, Suns-Clippers, Phoenix is the two seed in the West. The Clippers are the four seed in the West, and this is a second consecutive NBA postseason in which we have something like this in terms of the NBA's Final Four. The conference finals in the 2020 NBA playoffs in the bubble in Florida featured just one top two seed, as does this year's Final Four. The 2020 Eastern Conference Finals, number three seeded Boston Celtics versus the number five seeded Miami Heat. 2020 Western Conference Finals, number one seeded Los Angeles Lakers versus the number three seeded Denver Nuggets. Now, the Lakers, of course, went on to win the 2020 NBA championship, continuing a reality that is undeniable in the NBA. And it's something I've talked about regarding what the Wizards need to do this offseason. And that is, if you're not a top three seed, good luck winning an NBA title. Just two non-top three seeds, have ever won NBA titles, the number four seeded Boston Celtics in the 1968-69 season and the number six seeded Houston Rockets in the 1994-95 season. But if things are starting to change to where, hey, at the very least, you don't have to be a top two, top three seed to make the conference finals, I think that maybe does offer some encouragement for us here as Wizards fans when it comes to trying to find a realistic path by which our Wizards actually do something meaningful in the NBA playoffs. And yes, I would qualify making the Eastern Conference Finals as something meaningful for the Wizards in an NBA postseason. But like, if you go back through just recent NBA history and look at the seeds that made up Conference Finals matchups, 2019 Conference Finals featured two one-seeds, a two-seed, and a three-seed. 2018 Conference Finals featured a one-seed, two two two-seeds, and a four-seed. But that four-seed was LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers. 2017 conference finals featured two 1-seeds and two 2-seeds. Two it doesn't get more predictable than that. The 2016 conference finals featured two 1-seeds, a 2-seed, and a 3-seed. The 2015 conference finals featured two 1-seeds and two 2-seeds. Two the 2014 conference finals featured two 1-seeds and two 2-seeds. Two you get the idea. And it's not like every year it was two 1-seeds and two 2-seeds, two but it happened enough And you certainly saw enough of the two one seeds making the conference finals and at least one two seed making the conference finals to where it sure has felt like the NBA playoffs are as predictable as can be. And maybe just maybe now that is starting to change just a bit with these back to back NBA playoffs in which the conference finals have some diversity in terms of seeding. You know, we didn't really know what to think. With the 2020 NBA playoffs because of the bubble in Florida and the disjointed season because of the COVID 19 pandemic. But here we are now, a second straight NBA postseason in which you have a little bit of parity here when it comes to the NBA playoffs. And first of all, I think this is good for the NBA. But second of all, if you are the Wizards, it's not like, oh my God, if we're not a top two seed or top three seed, we have no shot here at doing anything substantial in the NBA playoffs. Maybe, just maybe, it doesn't have to be that you're perfect from a roster standpoint to where you can do something in the NBA playoffs. I think a lot of this has to do with in recent years, you've had fewer true big threes in the NBA, and now it's more about big twos. And so there's been more of a talent dispersal. I think that's been really good for the league. Uh, I still do think the Wizards need to add a third major piece if they want to be a legitimate play a play when it comes to the Eastern Conference landscape. But it's not anymore like you have to have your Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen, or your LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh, or your Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and Draymond Green. If you have two really good players and then a good cast around those players, you have a shot here. And that's the idea. And uh, I'm glad to see that because it just, it could not continue as it was with every season, the NBA playoffs being as painfully predictable as they had been. So if you're like me and are a lifelong Wizards slash Bullets fan, maybe, just maybe, there is some hope for our team actually doing something of substance sometime soon in an NBA postseason. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, exactly. There is not much worth getting into regarding what happened with the Orioles on Monday night. They lost game one of a three-game series against the American League-leading Houston Astros, 10-2. The game was so painful. Uh, took three hours, 40 minutes, not including two rain delays, one of which delayed the start of the game. The O's were no hit over the first seven and a third innings. And Keegan Akin had a third consecutive bad start. Five runs in four innings on six hits and four walks versus five strikeouts. He threw just 48 strikes versus 35 balls on 83 pitches. He gave up a homer, a double, and four singles. Aiken gave up all five runs in the top of the third, which featured a one-out, three-run homer by Jordan Alvarez on a one-two pitch. Second straight start in which Aiken gave up five runs in a third inning. His last outing, which came in the Orioles' 8-7 loss at the Cleveland Indians last Wednesday night, eight runs in five and two-thirds innings. And Aiken in that game allowing a five-run Indians third, in which each of the Indians' first six batters reached base. Single, walk, single, single, double, and a double. Now, he actually did do some decent things, and that last outing had seven strikeouts. Uh, he threw 71 of 96 pitches for strikes. But the overall results here for Keegan Aiken lately have not been good. 4-2 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays on June 11, Three runs and four innings. Aiken now this season over nine games, including five starts at the Major League level. ERA of 642, a whip of 157. And he actually had been good in each of his first two Major League starts this season. But these last three have not gone particularly well. So it's been a rough 2021 for Aiken, who, as you may recall, was supposed to make the Orioles' season opening rotation, but was so bad in exhibition play that the Orioles, on March 26th, optioned Aiken to AAA Norfolk, did not recall him until May 10th. Aiken's a 2016 second-round pick. He's in the midst of of his age 26 season. This is a bad matchup for the O's, all right, facing the Astros. The O's are an AL worst 23 and 49 with an AL worst run differential of minus 90. The Astros now are an AL best 44 and 28 with a major league best run differential of plus hundred twenty. So the O's have been outscored this season by 90 runs. The Astros have outscored opposing teams this season by 120 runs. Game two against the Astros at Camden Yards, Tuesday night at 7.05, Jorge Lopez versus Zach Granke. Also, the O's on Monday put reliever Cesar Valdez on the 10-day injured list with a lower back strain. Boy, has his season fallen apart. Valdez had been the Orioles' closer, had been doing a nice job, And things have just completely gone off the rails. He most recently has been the Orioles' long man. He has an ERA on the season now of 574, a whip on the season now of 165. I had viewed Valdez as a potential trade ship. Not right now. He ain't. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the podcast at yahoo.com. Lots more to come on all of our favorite topics on Wednesday's installment of the pod, including game one of the Nationals' big two-game series at the Philadelphia Phillies. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. This
2: phrase is going to be very important when I get together with the team. Now what? You know what I'm saying? Now what?